Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. Now we're in the, in the middle of a, gr- a great series, The After That. This is part two. If you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go online and have a listen to Pastor John's sermon. And then he'll be wrapping it up next week with part three of The After That. Would you stand right now? And we're going to just read the word of God together. Hebrews chapter nine and verse 27 says, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence that's so evident in this room today. God, we thank you for all the ways that you've met us, that you've ministered to us. And Father, we just invite you to speak to us through your word. God, our hearts are open. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would minister to us in the deepest places of who we are. Father, I pray that you would draw us. God, that you would change us. Lord Jesus, put your hand on us today. God, let your, let your spirit rest on me. Father, let me speak your words with clarity and with truth. And Lord Jesus, we just thank you for what you're doing in this place. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Amen. You can sit, you can sit down. I don't know how many of you besides me have noticed that this season is God symbols of death literally everywhere, right? This is Halloween time. Halloween comes in about, I don't know, a week and a half, something like that. And so it's all through our culture, these symbols of death. In my neighborhood, there's skeletons everywhere. Skeletons hung on on homes. People have put out these plastic things. And my next door neighbor in particular, they've doubled down on it. So they have skeletons that they have dressed up in Ghostbusters costumes. And so you have a skeleton that's, that's positioned like shooting a ghost. So I don't know what that means, but they definitely, the, the death theme is everywhere in this Halloween season, right? And it's, it, Halloween's an interesting holiday. It's become something that's uh, kind of a weird combination of candy and spooky, right? Two things you wouldn't necessarily think would go together. The origins of it are actually Christian, believe it or not. It started out with All Saints Day about a thousand years ago. And it started as a way to pray for the souls of those who were departed, pray that they would be headed for heaven. And that kind of got merged together with some odd pagan traditions and became what it is today. You also see the Mexican Day of the Dead is right around this time. You see a lot of things that are celebrating that. But, you know, it's not just this season. I think it's prevalent in our culture, this kind of fascination with death. The, the visiting of mediums, people who, uh, people who say that they can make connection with the dead people in your life, and you can talk to dead through them. That's on the rise. Actually, more and more people are visiting those kinds of people. There's all kinds of shows about talking to ghosts. Have you seen those ghost hunter shows that are everywhere? Like, I think there's a channel that literally hasn't, I don't know how the history channel became like the ghost channel, but that's pretty much the only thing that they play on history channel. I'm pretty convinced is like ghost hunter stories. So it's just like, there's this fascination in our culture with death. And I think it comes from that hunger to know what happens to the people we love when they die. What happens to us when we die? Is this really the end? What's it like on the other side? 
We want to see. We want to get a little glimpse. I think anybody who's lost somebody has wondered that at one point or another. I know I have. Uh, In particular, right after my husband passed away, my first husband died 22 years ago. He was killed in a car accident, tragically. He was just 20 years old when he died. He got married young, was on a trip to celebrate our second anniversary, and he was killed immediately. Godly man. He was a pastor, loved Jesus, a good man. And, you know, I really wrestled with the questions in the days that followed that. Why did this happen? Where did he go? Where's God in all of this? And I think we all face these questions. So I want to talk about this a little bit today. Really get into it. I think there's, there's three things that are on my heart I want to share with you that I've learned over the years. Processing death and eternity. The three things I think you need to know. First thing is, there's a real heaven and there is a real hell. They're both real. There's a big lie that's in secular society, and I'm sure all of you have heard it, that there is nothing at the other side of death. That once you are brain dead, that's it. Your existence is over and done. It's finished. This is it. This is the only shot you have is whatever time between your birth and death is, the time that you're breathing, that your heart is pumping, that you have brain activity, that's it. We're completely a physical being. There's nothing else that's there. But you know what? There's some interesting things that are out there these days, some interesting studies. And in the 70s, we learned as in medical science, we collectively, I am taking credit for that, but doctors in the 1970s figured out how to resuscitate people from the dead. You know, they, you've seen all those, probably, maybe some of you have come back this way, where it's an adrenaline shot or an electrical pulse, something that brings people back who are in cardiac arrest or have been brain dead. They come back. And what's interesting is that they've started to see patterns about what people experience because what they report is not that all of a sudden, you know, there's just nothing, that they have no memories or that it's just a big blank. They describe being fully conscious during that moment. They describe something happening that is unusual during that moment of being clinically dead. And they realized that there were some consistencies, and so they've started doing studies of near-death experiences. There's actually quite a few of them out. If you're interested, you can go Google them, and they're not, they're not hard to find. But they've tracked thousands of stories of near-death experiences, and they've tracked them over multiple ages, all the way from very old down to very young children have had similar experiences. People from all kinds of cultures, different places, different nations nations, different languages even. They've had similar experiences. Even people of different religions have had different, these similar experiences. And so they tracked them and did studies on them. And here's what they found is that when those moments of of death happened, they could still see 
see and hear outside their physical body. It was like all of a sudden there was a, a disconnect from their physical body. And many times they described being able to see themselves standing there and they could repeat back the things that had happened in the room in the moments that they were being uh, resuscitated in the moments of their, their, their death. They, they describe this being able to see a tunnel or walking into a tunnel, some kind of a, a barrier that they were headed towards. And all of them described um, a, a being of light, a divine being of light, which is interesting to me. If you've ever read uh, Revelation uh, chapter one, the way John described Jesus as shining like the sun in all its brilliance. Uh, but they described seeing something very similar to that. They've had very intense and positive emotions. A lot of times they said that they saw their life in review. It's like it played back the things that had happened to them. And they encountered deceased loved ones frequently. And then there was a moment where they came back into their body. Sometimes it was something they chose. Sometimes it was something they didn't want to have happen. Um, but they came back into themselves. And so I find it fascinating that science has no explanation for how that could happen when somebody is brain dead. When, uh, when, and I think it's a pretty clear indicator that maybe science can't explain who we are apart from our physical being, apart from our physical body. But the Bible tells us pretty clearly that we are two parts. We have the physical body of us, but we also have an eternal part of us. We call that maybe your soul or your spirit. Something that a mind that exists outside of the brain. Something that's not necessarily dependent on an EKG activity or a heartbeat. You see, we existed in God's imagination even before we were born. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4 says, The word of the Lord came to me, says Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's like we were there in God's mind. Even before he put a physical form around us, he knew who he wanted us to be. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7, it says, The dust returns to the ground that it came from, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. See, we're made of dust, right? God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. And what we become after death, this physical body decays into dust again. We return to dust. But Ecclesiastes says the spirit part of us goes back to God. So we're all going to exist in eternity after our death. We're all going to be there. So what do we know about that? What do we know about what lies on the other side? I want to think about that a little bit this morning together. You know, I know what heaven isn't. The Bible doesn't tell us that heaven is a place where we all get to kind of lounge around on soft, fluffy clouds and get fitted with a nice white set of wings. We get to play a harp and get chubby on chocolate just hang out for eternity. That's not what that's going to be. There's no 72 virgins waiting for me in heaven, <laughs> which I'm not real disappointed about, to be honest. This not, this not, there, there's nobody breathlessly waiting for you on the other side of heaven. It's virginal. But here's what we do know. Heaven is a real place. And the Bible tells us some things about heaven. It doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us some things. First Peter chapter one and verse three, 
Peter said, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. See, there's a reward in heaven for all of us who belong to Christ. It's really clear. This is, this is a reward that we can never spend completely. It's a reward we can't consume completely. It's a reward that never spoils. It never goes bad. It never goes away. There's a reward that we will get to enjoy for eternity. You know, in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John had this massive vision. And a lot of it is full of symbolism and hard to understand. But in that book, he describes heaven. He had this vision of what heaven could be. And so we can learn some things from John's description of heaven. And a lot of it is very symbolic. It's not a literal description. But from those symbols, we can understand some truths about what it's going to be like. In Revelation chapter 21, it begins to describe it, and it describes it through all of chapter 21 and a lot of 22. So if you're curious about it, I want to encourage you to go back and look at that later. Uh, but whatever, in, chap, in verse 1, it says that whatever heaven is right now, it's about to get recreated completely. God is recreating heaven. He's recreating the earth. That's his plan. And then in verse 3 and verse 22... It says that when, when we're in heaven, that God is going to be with us. So that barrier that's between us and God, where you can't see him right now physically with your eyes. Most of you, I'm guessing, have not heard God's voice with your ears audibly. Uh, you haven't touched him. But all of that's going to go away. Because God is going to be with us. So you'll be able to see Jesus with your own eyes. You'll be able to touch him with your own hands. You'll be able to have a conversation and hear his voice yourself. It says God will be with them. God will be with us in that place. In a, in a, a very a far more real way than we've ever experienced. And in verse 4 it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And in his presence, we're going to find healing, we're going to find restoration, we're going to find joy. The things that are so hard about this life, all of that is going to drop away from us. You know, John describes this incredibly beautiful city, glittering with precious gems and gold, all kinds of uh, incredible architecture. It's like what's there will never be falling apart. It won't ever be decaying. It won't ever be uh, run down. It's beyond description, extravagant and beautiful is going to be what it's like. It says, the city does not, this is verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb, the lamb is its lamp. The lamb is its lamp. It's going to be incredibly light filled. It's going to be a place of, of eternal, eternal day. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Now this is interesting to me because it seems to indicate that there's still activity happening. The nations are coming. Rulers are coming. The gates are open. There's this sense of traffic coming in and out of activity coming in and out. And I believe that means that the purposes of God are going to continue on the other side of eternity. That it's not like he's done forever and we all just get to just chill forever. There's going to be things happening. 
You know, Jesus told us more about heaven and hell when he was here. He said that eternal life awaits everybody in heaven or in hell. John chapter 5, verse 24, he said, Very truly, I tell you that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. It's a pretty simple formula, I think, for ensuring that we have eternal life with Jesus. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, it comes by faith. By trusting. He continued in verse 25. Very truly I tell you a time is coming. And has now come. When the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself. So he has granted the son. To also have life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge. Because he is the son of man. And Jesus when he, whenever he was talking about himself. In the third person. Son of man was the most common way. That he described himself. He's saying the Authority of the Father has been given to me so that everything happens through Jesus. On that day, he's going to be the one who is our judge, but he's also our advocate on that day. And he said, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. This is really interesting to me because Jesus was saying we're all going to experience resurrection of our bodies. But where we go after that, the kind of existence we're going to face after that will be very different. For some, they'll wind up in heaven for eternity. For others, they will wind up in hell for eternity. You know, it varies depending on our faith and our obedience to Jesus. Only those who've been victorious in their faith are going to be children of God. Jesus said pretty clearly, no one's, not all are going to make it into heaven. Not everyone's going to be there. In Revelation 21, John described it in verse 27. He said, nothing impure will ever enter that city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He said in verse 8, that those who have lived unrepentant towards God, this is what he says is going to happen. They'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The fiery lake of burning sulfur. Man, that's pretty intense. Jesus said that the hell and the devil are real. In Matthew 10, 28, he said, Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's pretty intense language there from Jesus. We like to think of him as our loving savior, and he is. But he's pretty clear about this. That word hell is originally the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a valley, a desolate valley, that was a symbol of this eternal place of torment a place of future punishment and final judgment. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what kind of punishment awaits people in hell. It doesn't describe to us the detail of that, but it does tell us that it's going to be eternally miserable, that it's a place we don't want to be. It's a place we don't want our loved ones to be. And Jesus said that once we get to heaven or we get to hell, we're there for good. There's no changing places. Once the door, the door is closed. That's it. 
In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told a story about two men. One of them was a very rich man, and one of them was a poor man named Lazarus. And this rich man, on his uh, going about his day, doing his business every day, he used to pass Lazarus begging on the street, and most of the time he would just ignore him. And then eventually the end of his life came, and the rich man wound up in hell. And Lazarus, the poor man, wound up in heaven. And in verse 25 of Luke chapter 16, uh, we pick up the story because what happened was the rich man looked over and he could see Lazarus with the patriarch Abraham and said, hey, can you just send him over with a little bit of water? He's sitting there burning in torment. It's like, I just need a little bit to cool my tongue. But Abraham replied in verse 25, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between you and us, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He said, Jesus is saying there's an eternal division between heaven and hell. It's like once you're there, you can't come back. As much as we might want to go to see people that we love that are in hell, if you're in heaven, you won't be able to do that. That's, that's where we are. You know, when we think about the people we love going to hell, it's incredibly distressing to think about. Man, I have a lot of family who don't know Jesus. And it breaks my heart to think that they might not make it into heaven. I think for all of us, we feel the pain of that thought. And we might even ask, how could a loving God send people to hell? How could that be possible? Someone who loves us so much would let that happen. But you know what? God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Jesus said that we go to heaven or hell based on the, de the decisions that we make. I make the decision about where my eternity lies. Matthew 25, in verse 41, Jesus said this, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I want you to notice something here about this verse. Who's the fire prepared for? It's not prepared for people. That's never what God's intention was for hell. He said it's prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You know, next week we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the judgment. So more on that. But I, I want you to know the eternal fire isn't meant for me. It's not meant for you. It's prepared for the devil and for his demons. And you know what? The truth is that God delays as long as possible to give us an opportunity to come to him. He's incredibly patient with us. He's constantly calling us, reaching for us, inviting us, creating opportunities to encounter his presence, knocking on the door of our heart. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repentance. 
That's his desire. Says he's, he's dragging his feet as slow as he can towards that finish line of when all of time and history wraps up. And he's going slow on purpose because he wants to make sure that as many people as possible have that chance to say yes to Jesus, to leave the old version of their life behind and become something brand new with him and be with him for eternity. That's what his heart is. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. But you know what? Jesus is the only way to God. We send ourselves to hell through our unbelief. Now, you know what? I think this really should create a sense of urgency in each one of us. Just to think, to reflect on how we live our life today. How we engage our relationship with Jesus. It's so easy when you're with something Continuously, especially after a lot of years, you know, you've been Christian for 30 years. It's a long time, 20 years for it to lose a little bit of the significance. And we slip into our traditions and our social groups and the things that just become common in our relationship with God. Ah, oh, he won't mind. He loves me. I'm his favorite. He doesn't, that, that doesn't bother him. I don't need to worry about that or I'll just pretend like he doesn't see that live a little bit unsurrendered in our life. You know what? It also affects, I think, how we think about our loved ones and their death. You know, if we believe this life transitions to another, shouldn't we do everything that we can to make sure our loved ones come with us to heaven? Man, that's such an important thing. And Jude, verse 21, it says, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. He said, Keep yourself in God's love. Make sure that you're doing everything that you need to to be right in the center of Jesus. Then it says in verse 22, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. You know, sometimes we got to get ourselves a little bit dirty if we're going to actually make sure that we snatch people away from hell and the grave, right? And, and there, there are things about Halloween that probably I don't like and you don't like. There's all kinds of creepy stuff. I don't, I'm not into it. I don't put out Halloween de decorations. I don't like any of that. But here's the truth, is that this cultural fascination we have with death creates an opportunity for us to have conversations about Jesus and eternal life in this season, there's something very unique that people are open in this season to those conversations. And it creates a, a crack in the door for us to be able to, to minister Jesus to somebody, you know, to minister his mercy. You know, that's why we do things like put together candy Palooza that's happening next week, because we're creating an intersection between our culture and what's happening. And we want to have an opportunity for our kids to encounter Jesus. It's such an incredible, you know, kids are the most likely to make a decision to follow Jesus. It's the statistics are just absolutely clear. <laughs> People make decisions to follow Jesus or not before they're 18 years old. And so that's why we, we want to make sure that your kids have the opportunity to minister Jesus to their friends. So next week, while when we have candy Palooza, I want to encourage you make sure if your kids have friends that don't know Jesus, if they have cousins that don't know Jesus, make sure you grab them along and bring them because they're going to hear the gospel. They think they're coming for candy, but they're going to hear the gospel in this place. That's what this is about. 
And we got to have that sense of urgency where we might, we might, we might, as, as Jude says, hate even the clothing corrupted by, by, by disdain flesh. But we got to make sure that we are engaging what we can to snatch people from the fire in any way that's possible. We win the lost at any cost. Here's the second thought I want to give you today is that God has an eternal perspective about death. It's different from ours. It's different from mine. I think we wrestle with this too, is when someone we love dies and we're just not ready for them to go. Maybe they died unexpectedly, tragically, or maybe we just weren't ready. We just wanted more time. How do we deal with that why question? Why did that person have to die? You know, people don't always die because God caused it or even because he didn't prevent it. And I know we wrestle with this idea of the sovereignty of God. Well, if God's in charge of everything all the time, then he must be the one who's responsible for this. And we wrestle with that. But the truth is that God gives us free will. He doesn't make us into little puppets that he controls every move that we make, every decision we make, all of eternity. God didn't decide that we were going to have a holocaust. That's not what happened. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 says, this is Jesus talking, here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, Jesus doesn't barge in to the door of our heart. He doesn't demand to be let in. He doesn't force his way. He stands at the door and knocks. He'll just stay there as long as it takes. Some people, it's 50 years He's still there knocking. Will you let me in? Will you let me in? I'm here. I love you. I want to be with you. Will you let me in? Will you let me in? And he never stops making that invitation. He never stops making that invitation, but he will not force us. And the same way, sometimes when things happen in our life, they happen because we have free will. Because we've made decisions. Sometimes people do foolish things and they result in death. Sometimes there are things that cannot be controlled or explained. Sometimes they're avoidable. Sometimes they're unavoidable. And we wonder why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God heal? Why didn't God stop? You know, sometimes I think about that with Rich because he drove through the night. It's like, why didn't I just say, no, we're not going to do that. Why didn't I put my foot down? Why didn't he put his foot down? Why didn't God send an angel and say, don't be dumb, don't drive all night, go to bed? You know, we wonder these things. We think about these things in our humanity. Why wouldn't God make that happen? But you know what? God doesn't unjustly allow people's death. He is justice. He is love. He is powerful. There's a, I think there's a different explanation I want to explore with you today. Because God doesn't experience time the same way that I do. His perspective is different. Second Peter 3 verse 8 says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And Peter's trying to explain this eternal perspective that God has. He just, he doesn't experience time the same way that we do. God sees all the past, all the present, all the possible futures that there are. He sees it all at one time together. He sits outside of time. I want to try to illustrate this for you. Uh, Greg and Champ, can you guys, can, can you guys come up here and help me out with this? Can you give him a hand? Handsome fellas. 
champion, if you can just go stand over there. And Greg, maybe stand right about here. Right behind Greg. Yeah. So this is me. I'm living my life, right? So here's me at birth. I'm born. Ding. I enter into this life, this existence. And between me and Greg, that's the, that is the, the scope of my life, the timeline of my life that I'm looking at. <laughs> Give me a thank you for an extra year. That was nice. <laughs> but where Greg is at, that's the end. Now, I can't see Champion on the other side. He's there, but I can't see beyond. Death becomes this barrier, this impenetrable barrier that I can't see past. So as I move through my life, I'm moving closer and closer to this dead end, and this is what I see. So for me, it feels like this is the end. And as soon as I cross over that, whoever's on the other side of that, now they can't see me. And so it feels like I'm gone. I'm, I'm gone for good. Champions over here, he's gone for good. But see, God has a perspective that's far more like yours right now. So he's sitting outside that timeline. And so when I'm standing over here, I'm no more real than champion is on the other side. I still exist just like champion still exists. This is the way God sees, sees time. You know, he, can, he can move his way through any perspective at any time. And so what feels like this big barrier to me, to God, is nothing. He can move right through it at all times. Thank you, guys. Another way to think about this, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a parade. We used to go to, when I grew up in Tucson, we go to the Rose Bowl Parade in California every now and then. You get up in the very early dawn and then go sit on the side of a sidewalk and wait for the parade to come for hours. Finally, the parade comes and you're, you're sitting there and you see just one float at a time go, go past you, right? It's kind of like this is how we experience time. Is It's passing. What I see is just this room this moment right here, things that happened yesterday, I can't see them anymore. The things that are going to happen tomorrow, I have no idea. They're in the future. They're outside this, what I can see, what I can experience. We just experienced this moment of the parade passing. But it's like, like Jesus is like up in the, in the helicopter. He's got that eye in the sky view where he can see the whole parade at once moving. And he can see all the traffic patterns that are swirling through those city streets. If you've ever seen from up in a plane and you look down at the city as you're landing, that's God's perspectives of time is that he sits outside of that. He's not bound by that. And so what feels like doesn't exist to us, to God, it's just in a different place. And so here's what I think, maybe sometimes we get very worried about whether somebody is on this side of death or not. You know, when we lose sight of somebody, we think they're gone. They're gone for good. But God, since God doesn't see them as gone, he's not nearly as worried as we are about whether they exist on this side of life or the other side of life. He's not nearly as concerned about that division between it. And, you know, we suffer when people, when we lose people, because we think about the years that we'll have apart. Even if, even if we're people of faith, we grieve because of that loss. But in God's perspective, it's not that he's not compassionate towards that. But in the scope of our eternal existence, man, those years that we're apart, it goes by like that. 
literally like that. It's a, a breath in the middle of, of eternity. That separation will just be a blink of time. You know, sometimes I think when, when somebody dies, God's actually sparing a person from a possible future on this side of eternity that's worse than death. There's an evil Isaiah 57 tells us this in verse one, it says the righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. Now that's a little tricky little phrase there. No one takes it to heart. doesn't mean how we would say no one takes it to heart in English. Like no one cares. It actually means that nobody embraces this or nobody accepts this. The righteous perish and no one accepts this. The devout are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace and they find rest as they lie in death. You know, if that's what was happening with rich, if God, uh, if God allowed that to happen because he was sparing rich from some greater evil, I wonder what that might've been. I wonder what that might've been. You know, I tend to think about the things that he missed out on. He missed out on having children. He missed out on getting old, all kinds of places he didn't get to see. I miss, I think about the things I missed out with him on all of the plans that we had together. That's what I tend to focus on, right? But what if there was a greater evil that he was being spared from and God was being merciful and allowing his death to happen at age 20? I wonder about that. You know, the night that I got home from the hospital after Rich died, I stayed up all night and I read the book of Job. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job. It's a pretty dark book, but that's how I was feeling at that particular point in time. But in, in Job's story, Job was a righteous man and God and Satan had this argument and God was kind of showing off and said, see this man, he's a faithful man. And Satan said, well, he's only faithful because you blessed him so much. It's easy to be faithful to God when things are going well, but what about when things aren't? And so God said, all right, you can touch him in this story, but don't take his life. And so in a day, all of his vast wealth was taken from him and all of his children died just like that. He lost literally everything in this incredibly tragic, horrible day. And you know, Job's response to this overwhelming loss was deeply convicting to me as I read it in the middle of the night. In verse, verse 20 of chapter 1, it says, At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Now, this is a signal of grief. This is how they grieved in this culture. Then he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Man, I, that's, it convicted me so much, because in that moment, I was not feeling like praising God. I was, I was asking God, Why? Why would you allow this to happen? And I was so challenged by Job's faith in that moment to say, hmm, doesn't matter what it is, God, I'm going to serve you anyway. Doesn't matter what the loss is. Doesn't matter how deep my grief is right now. I'm going to serve you and praise you anyway. Everything I had came from you. I was, yeah, isn't that convicting? But you know what occurred to me that night? This is Old Testament. Job is a book that's right in the middle of the Old Testament. It's actually one of the oldest books that has been written in the Bible. It's old, way before Jesus. 
Like Job had no idea who Jesus was, never heard Jesus' name, never knew what Jesus would do, that God would wrap himself in human flesh, be born of a woman, come live a human life, have a ministry here on the planet, and then face judgment and death and absolute torture to bear the penalty of my sin, that he would face the grave and then he would come out triumphant on my behalf, that he would show his love in such an incredibly <laughs> extravagant way. He didn't have that, but he still believed anyway. And so I, that, that night a determination rose in me and I said, you know what? If God never does one more good thing for me, the cross is enough. That's all I need. The cross is enough. The cross is enough for me to be convinced that Jesus is worthy, that Jesus is loving, that Jesus is faithful, that Jesus is good, that Jesus is all I need, that everything I need is found in the cross. But you know, God is faithful and he is good. And when we, when we decide to do that, that's not the end of the story. See, for Job, it says that when he did that, when he had that kind of response towards God, in the end, God not only restored Job's wealth, but he gave him way more than he had at the beginning, gave him more children. And you might be like, well, what about the kids that he lost? That doesn't seem fair. But you know what? Job was reunited with his children again in eternity. And now he had more children. You know, he's with them now in eternity. He's an eternal being. You know, it's the same thing has been, has happened in my life over the past 22 years. God has been incredibly good to me, incredibly faithful to provide. And he gave me John, brand new husband. He, he gave me kids. He gave me grandkids and he's so faithful. He's so faithful when we say yes to him, he brings healing. He brings restoration or it doesn't have to be the end of the story. You know what? And this is the third thing. The third idea I want to leave you with is that we face death full of hope for the future. You know, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to be afraid of terrorists in this day or wars that are going on, the death that might come. Instead, we live ready to go any day. And if we die, it's a turning of the page into a new phase of eternal existence. That's what it is. Paul said in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, he said, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Paul calls this body an earthly tent. I don't know, has anyone here been camping before? I grew up in a house that did a lot of camping, yes. So my dad, he was a forestry major, which means his original like desire for life was to become a park ranger. No joke. That's what he wanted to do with his life. He never accomplished that. However, it did mean that literally every single family vacation we did when I was a kid was to go to some remote part of America and set up a tent. And then you'd get there in the morning, you'd set up this tent, and then you'd spend all day hiking through the wilderness, forests, whatever it is. And my dad would go and like identify plants to us. He'd be like, this is an oak tree. You can tell by the leaves. And this is the pattern. So I 
like I know a little bit about identifying trees from my dad, but this was vacationing. But then you get back to the campsite every night and invariably you're exhausted because you've been hiking all day. You're starving. There's nothing hot to eat. There's no refrigerator. You're filthy because you've been walking around in the dirt all day and there's no bathroom. There's no shower. There's no nothing. You crawl into a tent and you have to try to like hide your food from the animals because you're so vulnerable. And then all the bugs get into your tent. The mosquitoes are in there with you and you're, you're lying on the ground in the, uh, you know, if it rains, it's even worse because the rain starts leaking through your tent. You're just wet and cold. And it's just, it's just awful. And my, my parents, they tried to like soften the blow with those blow up rafts that you buy for the pool. And you guys have camped on a, a blow up raft before. It's like, you know, it's like a big plastic raft and you put air in it. And that's great for like the first 10 minutes. And then they always have a slow leak. So, you know, by about two o'clock in the morning, you're just, you're just on the ground. You're just flat on the ground at that point. It's just a piece of plastic underneath your, underneath your, um, underneath your sleeping bag. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable. I don't like camping. I used to gaze longingly. You'd pass by the lodge and um, you'd go in and just smell the hot meal cooking and like go in. Oh my gosh, it's so warm. This couch is so comfortable. Oh, look at that. There's an actual bed with sheets and a shower. Oh my gosh, it looks amazing. And I was like, why can't we be in the lodge? And my dad would be like, no, we camp. We're campers. It's character building. So this is vacation. How is this vacation? I wound up spending, I spent two months in a tent in Botswana when I was about 19 years old. And let me tell you, tents are not meant for long-term living. They are just not meant for long-term living. But you know what? That's what Paul calls this body. He says it's a tent. It's not designed for long-term living. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hot. It's going to break down. Oh, it's interesting to me, even, even when we experience healing in our physical body in this life, it's always temporary. It's like patching the hole in the tent. Because he says we're meant for an eternal building. He says that the body that we are destined for is so much better. It's like comparing this body to a tent compared to what we will be in, in eternity, the eternal body. And he says in, in verse two, he says, meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked for while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. Isn't that fascinating language? What is mortal? This thing that's going to die, this thing that is decaying every day. He said it's going to be swallowed up through the process of dying by life into something that's so much better, so much greater, so much stronger, so much sturdier. All the discomfort that we experience, you know, the extra pounds, the getting out of breath, the getting sweaty and dirty, all the things that make living in this body, in this earthly tent uncomfortable are going to be totally different in our eternal body. You know, it means he says uh, in second Corinthians four sixteen. therefore we do not lose heart though outwardly we're wasting away yet inwardly we're being renewed every day. It's just that we don't have to worry about getting older. We don't have to keep chasing our youth or trying to find the fountain of the fountain of youth somewhere. We're called to have an eternal perspective about it. 
the inner part of me is getting stronger and stronger as it gets ready for what is going to be. The end is not the end. In fact, you know, after we shake off this old body with its pains and its weaknesses, and we're clothed with an eternal body full of life and strength. Paul described our new bodies, what we're going to have in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. He said, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. When God wraps up all these things, death is going to be done. There will be no more death. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that's sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. The body that's sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You see that contrast between the body that we have now and what we will have. He says you can't inherit Inherit it while you're still in this body. What's coming, you have to pass through that portal of death to experience it. That's what he said in, in verse 50, 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the Imperishable and the mortal with imperishable, then the saying that has written will become true. Death has been swallowed up by victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? See, when we view death as an entry to new life, it changes our view of it, a view of it, because death is only the beginning of something new. Death is never going to win. Death has no dominion over us. Death will be forever defeated. Death means that we get to see Jesus. Death means that we get a brand new body. Death means that we get to experience our eternal home in heaven. Death means that we get to see the people that we lost that are with Jesus again. Death isn't something that we have to be afraid of. Death isn't something that we need to worry about. You know what? Even though we have this hope, we do still grieve for those who go before us. We do grieve, but we don't grieve the same as everyone else. We grieve a little bit differently. We grieve with joy when we know someone is with Jesus. We grieve with deep sorrow when we know they aren't with Jesus. We do grieve, and we should. We're separated from our loved ones for a while, and we miss them. See, here's the thing. God isn't impatient with our grief. He's not saying, hey, something better's coming. Get it together. You don't need to be sad. There's a story in John chapter 11. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who became very, very sick. Different Lazarus from the previous story. Lazarus became very sick and his sisters sent for Jesus and said, come, would you come? Come heal him. And Jesus was delayed on his way. And while they were waiting, Lazarus died. When Jesus finally got there, his sisters were overcome with grief. And they said, Jesus, if you had just been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And you know, it's amazing. Jesus didn't put his finger up in their nose and say, you shouldn't be crying right now. 
I'm about to do something that's going to blow your mind here. Even though Jesus knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, even though he knew this wasn't the end of Lazarus's life, John 11, 35, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, easy one to memorize. Jesus wept. That was his response in the moment. Jesus had compassion on them, and he joined them in their grief. He wasn't impatient with them in their grief. He wept with them, even though he knew he was going to raise them from the dead. He loved them, and he grieved with them. And you know what? That's the way Jesus is with us, as he grieves with us when we miss people, when we love people. There's no way to skip grief. There's no way to avoid it. We might push it off and delay it by distracting ourselves, but we have to we have to process our way through it. But you know what? We don't have to go through it alone. Jesus is right there with you. Your church family is right here with you. You know, we don't want to take grief away from you because it's the byproduct of a lifetime of love that's worth having. That grief is a signal of how valuable that person was, that relationship was. And we don't want to take that away. We don't want to diminish that. If people can experience two things at once, you can be both sad that you lost somebody and happy that their pain is over, that they're with their Savior, that you're going to see them again in eternity. We are complex beings. We can feel those two things at the same time. So it's okay for us to give people permission to grieve, to not try to talk them out of grieving. You know, so much, so many times I think I experience this a lot of times people, we struggle. We don't know what to say when we're talking to somebody who's lost, but it's so simple. Really. All we need to do is just say, Hey, I love you. I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you. Just care. I don't have to try to give them a big theological treatise for what's going on. Just pray for them. Just be with them. And today we're going to take a little bit of time in just a few moments, because I think there's some of you here as we start this holiday season, and you're probably dreading it a little bit because there's somebody who's been a part of your life that made holidays special that's gone, and it makes you think about them whenever you celebrate. We're going to take a little bit of time because I think Jesus wants to minister to you today. But before we do that, I think there's another group of people here today. And as I was describing heaven and hell, you realize maybe that you're not 100% sure where you'll wind up on the other side of death. You're not sure if you've been living for God. You're not sure if you know Jesus today. And if that's you, if you're not sure, man, I want to make sure that we give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. It's not hard. It's just a really simple process where we surrender and say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. And we receive his love. We receive his forgiveness in our world. So I want to make an opportunity for you to just respond to him today because he's definitely been inviting. He's definitely been making his way into your life. He's trying to get your attention.
He's saying, I love you. I want to be part of your life. I want to be part of your eternity. 